Good morning. Pray with me. Father, we, uh, as always, are grateful for your word. And as we come to it this morning, I pray that you would give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us hearts that are open to the, to the word and to, and to what you would say to us this morning through it. Uh, as we gaze upon Jesus, as we see him um, lifted up, Lord, I pray that uh, our hearts would be continued, what we would, would continue to be transformed into his likeness, that we would be transformed from one degree of glory to another by, by gazing upon him. So we want to see Jesus this morning, Father. Show him to us through your word, and we'll give you thanks for that. Um, we pray this in his name. Amen. Well, as you figured out, we're, um, we're back in the, in the Gospel of John. We started back up last week in cha- at the beginning of chapter 13. I, I don't know about you, um, although the, this first half of the year has been, has been great. It's been instructive. We've seen a lot of different things. I'm glad to be back in John. Um, uh, I love John. I love the fact that, that, that somewhere after the other three Gospels were composed, that, that the, the Holy Spirit inspired John to take a look at the life of Jesus in a different way. And if you read the other three Gospels, they're, 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 they're typically referred to as the synoptics because they have a, they have a similar view of Jesus. They tell the story in, in similar ways. Um, and John, as he sat down to write, he just decided, I can just picture him. He said, I'm going to write another gospel. It's, it's later. It's, he's, he's approaching, uh, most scholars think, approaching probably the end of his life. And it just seems to me that as he sat down to write, he thought, I'm, I, want to, I want to give the people a different viewpoint. I, I want them to see this from an insider's point of view. I mean, Matthew was one of the disciples, but, but John had, I think, a unique And I think he just gives us a view of Jesus that's, that's different. I mean, one example is what we're looking at. We, uh, we started last week. We're going to spend a, a number of weeks looking at what happened in the upper room. The other gospel writers um, don't give it very much space. You know, it's, it's part of a chapter in each of the other gospels. Here it's five chapters. John gives us five chapters of the view of what transpired as Jesus gathered his disciples for their last Passover together. And that's where we are this morning. We're in John chapter 13. As, as Chris said, it's where the, the, the text we're going to see this morning is really just a continuation of what we saw last week. As Jesus gathered his disciples, did something incredible, uh, perhaps even unthinkable. He, as their rabbi, as their master, as their teacher, condescended to, to wash their feet, to serve them in a way that was, that was, that was lowly, in a way that would have been the, the purview of a, of a servant. And Jesus there demonstrated that that's why he came, to, to serve. And he, he, and he said, I'm doing this as an example so that you can see what you ought to do. And, and Chris also pointed out that through the first um, 20 verses, interspersed, we get this, I, uh, with all the other things that Jesus is doing and saying, we get, this, we get these interspersed um, uh, mentions of betrayal betrayal. Um, and that's what we're going to see this morning. It all comes to, that, that comes to a head here in our text here. So we're looking at 21 through 30. Um, I decided to title the sermon for this morning, And It Was Night. And It Was Night. It's the last sentence of this paragraph, the last sentence of 
this um, this section, uh, the, the 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 things are going to take a take a turn as we move on to verse thirty one uh, next week. And it was night. It's it's the final sentence of this section, but it's also. Uh, as we've seen, if you remember back to what we've seen in John so far, it's also a pervasive theme. Throughout the gospel, this, this juxtaposition, this contrast between light and darkness has been pervasive. We've seen it over and over and over again. In fact, it was in the very beginning. If you, if you jump back to the beginning of the book, as John writes his preamble, he says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. This light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We see it again when, when Nicodemus comes, and Jesus says this, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Now, perhaps this theme comes to its apex, its, its, its culmination in, in chapter 8 when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then more recently, back in chapter 12, uh, verse 35, Jesus says this, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk in the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. And then just a little further on in verse 46, I have come into the world as light, that whoever believes in me shall not remain in darkness. So, as you can see, this theme has been recurring, comes up over and over and over again. This, this contrast between, between walking in the light and walking in darkness. And here we're coming to uh, a paragraph that is really about choosing darkness. It's about one who, who would, given the choice between light and darkness, chose the darkness. After six... Um, Verses 64 and 65 say this. It's a long chapter. John chapter 6, 64 and 65 says this. Uh, Jesus speaking again. There are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus knew from the beginning those who... <clears throat> Jesus, knew, Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And this a little further on in verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you, 12, was going to betray him. And then, as I said, and as Chris said last week, we see these interspersed mentions of betrayal throughout the beginning of chapter 13. As, as Jesus gathers his disciples in the upper room, it says in verse 2 that during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper, and he, and he washed his disciples' feet. The amazing implication being that one of the disciples whose feet he washed was, uh, was Judas, who was about to betray him. And then this again in, in verses 10 and 11, after Simon Peter protests, Jesus says to him, "'The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean.'" 
And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. And then finally here, well, not finally, but as we uh, moved into closer to our passage this morning, Jesus says, if I'm not speaking of all of you, this is verse 18, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom, I've, whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me, referring again to Judas, quoting as Chris just did, Psalm 41. So that's where we find ourselves here this morning. We find ourselves in a place where betrayal is reaching its, its highest point, where choosing darkness is the theme, and it was night. So we begin with this. Um, Jesus, after saying these things, this is verse 21, after the things he just said in verses, um, verses 12 through 20, he continues to speak. And it says that Jesus was, uh, was troubled in his spirit. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. We've seen this word uh, uh, used of Jesus other times. Actually, it was used not of Jesus back in, in chapter 5 when it talked about the man who was coming to the pool of Bethesda to be healed. And it says that the water was, was stirred up. It's the same word there, to, that the water was, was troubled. We've seen it said of Jesus also. Um, Back in, uh, in, in chapter 11, when he came to, to Mary and Martha after the death of Lazarus, it says that his soul was, was troubled as he, as, he, as he saw his friends, Martha and Mary, weeping. It, it, it troubled his soul. It also, it also says in that same context that he was indignant, almost angry, as if, as if death had stirred him up. He was indignant and he was, he was troubled. And then again in chapter 12, it says that in anticipation of what was to come, anticipation of his suffering, Jesus said this in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. So as he considers what is coming, he knows the, the, the agonies, the indignities, what he is about to suffer, and it, and it troubled his soul. So he was troubled in response to, to, the, to the grief of his friends. He was troubled in response to the suffering that he was anticipating. And now we see him suffering because he knows that one of his own is about to betray him. He's troubled in his spirit. And it says then that he, that he testified. It says that he was troubled in his spirit and he testified. I, I have to admit to you, I, I read over this, I don't know, 50 times before that word sort of jumped out at me. He was troubled in his spirit and he testified. Now, John could have picked any number of words. In fact, in the Greek, it says he testified and said. Some of the, I think the NASB actually says that. It says that he testified and said. Um, he could have just written, John could have just written that he said, but he chose to use this word. Not only did he say it, but as he said it, he was testifying. The reason this is important is because just like light and darkness are... I counted them up. <clears throat> I think I got the number right. I think the verb for testify appears 33 times in this gospel. It's most often translated bear witness. Uh, the noun form testimony appears, I think, another 14 times. 
So clearly this is an important theme in the, in the Gospel of John. And I think the reason why it's an important theme is because it's part of John's purpose. Um, what he writes, he is he's bearing witness to what he has seen. Um, when we get to the end of the book in chapter 20, uh, no, in cha- actually in chapter 21, the very tail end of the book, the last verse, the second to last verse says this, this is the disciple, John identifying himself, this is the disciple who is bearing witness, who is testifying about these things, and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So in that one verse, in that one sentence, we see both the noun form and the verb form, that John came to bear witness. He's writing these things down to bear witness. He's writing these things down to, to, test, to, to provide a testimony. And of course, we know, as we've seen over and over and over again, that his purpose in providing this testimony from John chapter 20 is that you would believe. And that's what he says in verses 30 and 31 of the chapter 20. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So it begs the question then, what is it about this testimony When John says that Jesus is now testifying, and what he says is, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me, what is it about that that is is testimony? What is it about that that is bearing witness? It's as if he is standing as a witness in a trial, and he's providing, providing proof. Well, what is it that he's providing proof of? Well, we got a glimmer of that last week. If you remember what he said, he, he, he quoted Psalm 41. He said, the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And then he said, I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe. You may believe. You may believe that I am. I am he is the way that ESV translates it. Chris made the point last week that it's... Uh, it's supposed to raise in our minds the, 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 the name of God, uh, Yahweh, that he is saying what he's claiming here as is, is deity. He's saying, I'm testifying to that. So what he's testifying to here, when he says, one of you will betray me, he is demonstrating, he is providing proof, he is bearing witness of his deity. Which to me was was really interesting because because he just it just said that he was troubled, which is a very human reaction, isn't it? And you know that one of your friends, someone that you've spent the last thirteen uh, thirteen the last three years pouring yourself into, one who's been one of your close followers, is about to betray you. Isn't that a very human reaction? To be troubled in your soul, to be troubled in your spirit. I think what we see here in such close proximity is a demonstration that Jesus is both fully man, able to experience this this troubling, and also fully God, because he knows exactly what's happening. In fact, he predicted it ahead of time, demonstrating his deity. In fact, he said, I'm telling you this before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will know that I'm God. God, uh, Jesus humanity and his deity 
right here, just uh, right next to each other. And it's, of course, as I said, it's part and parcel of John's purpose. It, it, it's providing a testimony that is intended to lead to, to belief, to faith. That's what he's testifying to here. So that's why I called this verse Jesus' testimony. Moving on in the story, um, the disciples react in, in a way that it's not, uh, not unexpected, in a way that I guess we could probably anticipate. They're, um, they're, they're uncertain. It says this in verse 22, the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. So they're sort of sizing each other up. They're looking, you know, they're, is, it, is, it, is it you? Is it you? They're, you know, sitting, they're, they're, they're reclining at the table, but they're, so they're, they're checking each other out to try to determine who it, it might be that, uh, that Jesus is talking about. If you take it from this account, it seems like they're kind of looking at each other, maybe slightly accusatory, uh, maybe not, but, but checking each other out to see who it is that it might be. The other Gospels give us a little bit of a different twist. The other Gospels tell us that as Jesus said this, they began to look around each other, and then they turned to Jesus, and they all said, is it I? Jesus, are you talking about me? Am I the one that's going to, to betray you? In fact, Matthew tells us that even Judas chimed in, somewhat, um, I guess, somewhat disingenuously. Fully knowing what he was intending to do, he says, well, Jesus, is, is, is it I? It's not me, is it? Uh, there's something about this that, that I, I think that it's, it's so real, isn't it? I mean, at least I think it should be. I think what this shows us is that the disciples in this moment, um, they recognize uh, their capacity to sin. You know, <laughs> Try to put yourself in their spots. Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, and they all sort of step back for just a moment and say, could this be me? Could, could I be the one that's going to, to, to be the betrayer of my Lord and my master, my teacher? Could, could it be me? I think this is real. This is a, a recognition that all of us have a capacity to sin in ways... Maybe that might even seem unimaginable. Uh, to me, it's an encouragement. You know, if we want to, want to take the implication away from that, the, the takeaway, it's, an, it, it's, it's, a, it's a reminder of my own capacity to sin. It's a, it's a reminder that, that there but for the grace of God might I go. That it's, it's through, it's through the, 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 the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit that I don't sin as much as I might. That, that I have in my humanness a vast capacity to sin and that it's the grace of God that saves me from many of those sins that I might commit otherwise. It's, uh, it's getting real, I think. Is it I, Lord? Could it be me? Uh, this, the, this, the disciple bottom of it, you know, got to love Peter. He, he, he's sizing up the room, and he says, I, I, I need to know. So he 
he, he, it says that he, he motions. This is verse 23, verses 23 and 24. Uh, one of the disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. I'm not sure what kind of hand signal he gave. I don't know. Uh, but he, some sort of motion to communicate to uh, well, we believe it's John, right? It's the disciple that, that Jesus loved. This is the first time he's referred to that way. Um, we see the disciple that Jesus loved again a number of other times. We see, him, uh, we see him at the cross. We see him at the empty tomb. We see him in the epilogue when, she, when Peter is restored. Um, and then, as I mentioned in, at the very end of the book, when he, when he identifies himself as the writer. I think uh, most scholars, although they're obviously... Always differences of opinion. Most scholars would agree that it's uh, John himself who is who is writing here. So he's giving us this first person. Love was reclining at table. Uses third person to refer to himself. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. Simon Peter motions to him. So the disciple responds. He he's right next to Jesus. I think we need to picture this. Um, a picture we often get of the the Last Supper is the one that you know the Da Vinci one, where they're all kind of sitting in a row. You know, Jesus is in the middle and they're all sitting next to each other. Um, that wouldn't have been the way they were they, they would have been um, positioned, as it says here. They were reclining at table. It's likely it was probably more of a U-shaped table. Jesus in the center, acting as the host, and then the disciples leaning on one arm and using you know, whatever hand, they, you know, assuming they were mostly right-handed, leaning on their left arm, using their right hand to, to partake of whatever it is they were partaking of. So they're reclining at the table. John is leaning in towards Jesus, and he simply asks, Lord, who is it? Who is it? Peter wants to know, who is it? And... I think this tells us a couple of things. Um, Jesus responds, by the way. He says, it's he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So we know two things. Well, we, we know one thing, and we can, I think, infer another. We know that John was, was, was right next to Jesus, close enough that he could lean into him, maybe even whisper, Lord, who is it? But we also know that Jesus, when he dipped the morsel he handed it to Judas. I mean, that's what it says. He said, when he had dipped the morsel, he, Jesus, gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. To me, that means that Judas was sitting on Jesus' other side. Judas was sitting on Jesus' other side. John, the, the disciple that Jesus loved, was sitting on one side, and Judas was sitting on the other. At a, at a gathering like this, those would have been the places of highest honor. <laughs> it boggles my mind. No, John, that makes sense. He was the disciple that Jesus loved. Of course he's going to sit next to Jesus. But on Jesus' other side is Judas. And, and Jesus knows what's about to happen. He knows that Judas is about to choose darkness over light. He knows that he's going to go out into the night and betray him. He, he knows that Judas has already planned and schemed and, 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 and made this conspiracy with the chief priests. He's already received the 30 pieces of silver. 
And yet, Jesus either allowed or perhaps even invited Judas to sit at his side during this meal. So not only has he washed this man's feet, but now he's putting him in a seat of honor. And again, in this context, to, for the host to dip a piece of bread and then hand it to somebody would have been another. Yeah, it's just, to me, it's just, it's just mind-boggling. John in a place of honor and Judas on the other side. It makes me wonder, you know, I can't necessarily. The scene unfolds, and we get to this particular spot. Is, is, is Jesus in some way doing everything he can to give Judas an out? He knows what Judas has planned. He, know what, he knows what is in Judas's heart. He knows what he intends to do. Is he, is he somehow giving him one, one last chance? F.F. Um, F. Bruce puts it like this. I, I, I liked his way of, of phrasing this. He says this. Jesus' action in, in singling out Judas, singling Judas out for a mark of special favor may have been intended as a final appeal to him to abandon his treacherous plan and play the part of a true disciple. Up to that moment, the die had not been irrevocably cast. If Judas wavered for a second, it was only to steel himself to carry out his fatal resolution, to become the willing instrument of Satan, whereas he might have been the free follower and messenger of his master. Satan could not have entered into him had he not granted him admission. Had he been willing to say no to the adversary... All of his master's intercessory power was available to him there and then to strengthen him. But when a disciple's will turns traitor, when the spiritual aid of Christ is refused, that person's condition is desperate indeed. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. It may have been that it was almost, uh, almost uh, a fait accompli, that, that, that there was no turning back up to this point. But maybe, just maybe, Jesus was giving him one last shot. One more thing um, before we turn to the next point. Um, scholars differ. They go kind of back and forth about whether or not we're seeing the Lord's Supper here. To be sure, John doesn't doesn't say anything explicit about it. He doesn't he doesn't mention the words of institution or anything like that. The other gospel writers do. They're intentional about it. Personally, for me, I think if John intended to to be depicting the Lord's Supper here, he would have said so. So I think this is something on something else going on here. We do know, however, from from Luke's account that Judas was present when the Lord's Supper was instituted. We know that he was sitting there. We know he received the bread. He received the wine. In fact, in Luke's account, the words of institution directly precede the accusation. They're, they're, they're part of the same, the, same, the same block of text. 
There's not even a pause. Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper, and then he says, oh, by the way, one of you is going to betray me. So Judas was there. Judas was part of that as well. He, he had his feet washed. He had, he had a, a place of honor at the table, and he was there when Jesus instituted the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper, communion. So we're led to this. We've seen Jesus' testimony. We've seen the disciples' reaction of uncertainty. And now we are here at uh, what I think is just the point of no return. Where it says this, verse 27, Then after he had taken the morsel, after he had received this honor from his teacher, Satan entered into him. Satan entered into him. And I think at this point, um, his choice is made. If, if he hadn't quite decided up to this point, he, he now has decided exactly what it is he's going to do. His, uh, his fate is sealed, if you will. The die is cast. He is now at the point of no return. You see, Judas loved the darkness more than he loved the light. Now, the other Gospels tell us about the conspiracy with the chief priests. They tell us about the 30 pieces of silver. John hasn't gone into that detail, but the other Gospels tell us that at this point he has already made this plan, that, that, that he has begun at a, at a place of, uh, of disbelief, and now he's spiraled his way down to the point where he is ready to go out and betray. I think it's interesting to me that, that there was a, that we do see a progression with Judas. He, he begins to think about the plan, then he seeks out the chief priests, and they concoct their conspiracy, and then, and then he's, it says that, that it had entered his mind, it has entered his, entered his heart, and now we see that Satan himself is entering in to Judas. This downward spiral, this, this progression that has led to his, to, to his betrayal. Jesus' response to me is, uh, it's interesting. Jesus is fully aware of all of this, and he says this, what you are going to do, do quickly. What you're going to do, do quickly. In other words, you're going to go out and betray me, go get it done. The reason that's interesting to me is because we know that when the, when the chief priests, when the Jewish leaders were, 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 were conspiring, one of the things they said, one of their, one of their criteria for, for, for getting Jesus was that we wait until after the feast. Again, that's not, that's not shown here in John, but the other gospel writers tell us that as they were conspiring, they said, you know what? We want to get Jesus, but we're going to wait till after the feast, after the feast of the Passover. And they were afraid of the people. They knew that the people held Jesus in high regard, and they didn't, they didn't want his arrest to, to stir up the people. So they said, we're going to wait till after the feast. And now here, in the midst of the feast, Jesus tells Judas, what you're going to do, do quickly. And what that tells me is that Jesus is orchestrating all of these events. That Jesus is sovereignly in control of all of these events. We saw at the beginning of the chapter that Jesus says, after saying over and over and over again throughout the book, my hour has not yet come, we see that at the beginning of chapter 13, he says, his hour has come. 
Who made that determination? Who decided that it was time? Well, the Father and the Son. They, they agreed together that it was, it was time. And now Jesus is saying to Judas, I know you have a plan. I know, I know you're thinking this is, going to take, you're, this is going to happen a little later. No, it's not happening a little later. It's happening right now. Go do it. Go do it. I think what we're seeing here is that this Passover lamb, this Jesus who's going to give himself, who's going to sacrifice himself, to give himself as a lamb for the slaughter, just like all the other Passover lambs are sacrificed during the feast, this Passover lamb is also going to be sacrificed. Not after the feast, but during the feast. And it says that no one knew. Now, no one at the table knew why Jesus said this to Judas. What you're going to do, go quickly. No one knew what, they didn't know in, in particular what it was that Jesus was talking about. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give, him some, he should give something to the poor. <laughs> These ideas are, um, they're just dripping with irony, aren't they? It tells us something about the disciples, too. Earlier they were uncertain. They weren't sure who it was that Jesus was talking about. Uh, and I kind of love this about them. To the very end, they're trusting Judas. You know, Even though Jesus has just said, one of you is going to betray me. You know, It says no one at the table. I don't know if John is excluding himself from that because he just had this interaction with Jesus where Jesus told him who it was going to be. I'm going to give the morsel and... So John should know. Maybe he's excluding himself. No one else at the table knew what he was saying, knew what he was talking about. There's so much irony here that, that, that this unscrupulous disciple, the one who, who had the money bag and was, and was helping himself to it, as we're told elsewhere, he's gonna, maybe he's going to go out and buy something. We're, we're gonna, the, the feast is going to continue and we need some, some more supplies. Maybe he's going to go out. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe he's going to go out and buy us Buy us a lamb, which would be, which would be very ironic. You know, maybe he's going to go out and minister to the poor. We know he has he, he has no interest in the poor. He was lining his own pockets. In fact, he's lined his own pockets with the silver from the chief priests. Says he has not bought but sold a lamb. Jesus himself. So he lined his own pockets with this blood money. And then it says that he immediately went out. He received the morsel of bread, and he immediately went out. It's amazing to me as well. Even in the midst of this plan of betrayal, as he's, as he's leaving to go to, to do this dastardly deed, there's a, there's a way, there's a sense in which he's being obedient. He's still, he's still obedient to his master. It's, it's just, it's, again, it's, a, it's, a, it's an odd juxtaposition going on here. He's about to betray him, but he is somehow compelled to do what he says. Jesus says, go quickly, and he goes. And it was night. And it was night. Jesus Send him out, and Judas now finally fully surrenders to the darkness. One commentator I, wrote, I read wrote this, This man walked out 
into eternal night. This man walked out into eternal night. So, what are the, uh, what are the implications of all this? Is this, is this just a story? Or are the things we can take away from it? One that, one that jumps out to me is this amazing um, juxtaposition, I guess. And that's the word that comes to my mind. In parallel, running, these, uh, these contrasts. The contrast between Jesus' humanity and his deity. Well, maybe not so much a contrast as the two of them coming together in his troubled spirit and in his testimony. Jesus, fully, fully man and fully God, fully on display here. This is a Jesus that we, that we can worship and one that identify with us and we can identify with him. And then there's this, there's this uh, idea of, of God's sovereignty, of Jesus being, in, being fully in control of all of these events. And yet in the midst of it, Judas being fully responsible for his own choices. You know, <laughs> that's when I, uh, I think we probably all wrestle with that, knowing that for our decisions, for our choices. We see that here in this passage. We see Judas fully under Jesus' control, doing exactly what Jesus said he was going to do. I mean, that's what Jesus said. I'm telling you what's going to happen ahead of time so that you'll believe. He said this in Matthew. Jesus said this in Matthew as he made this announcement about the betrayal. He said, the Son of Man goes at it as it is written of him. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Places like you know, Psalm 41. But... Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So Jesus is fully in control, and yet at the same time, Judas is held fully responsible for what he is about to do. God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And perhaps the starkest contrast, one that we've seen, as I said, throughout the book, it's contrast between darkness and light. Darkness and light. Light that comes through Jesus, the one who is the light of the world. He's the light of the world, and as he said, I quoted this earlier, I'll quote it again. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So I, I guess my, my, my closing question for you this morning is, um, where are you walking? Where are you walking? I think this passage begs that question. Are you walking in darkness? Or are you walking in light? There are really only those two choices. It's one or the other. Either you are in step with Jesus, walking in the light as he is in the light, or you're walking in darkness. My appeal to you this morning, if you find yourself on the darkness side, is to accept what Jesus has done for you. It is just hours from now as we're making our way. It's going to take us you know, a little while to get to the cross from here because, as I said, John spends a lot of time in the upper room. 
But make no mistake, that's where we're headed. We're headed to the cross. And for Jesus, it was just a few hours from what we're seeing here, these events that are, being, that are unfolding here in John. It's just a few hours before he is on trial and condemned and beaten and ridiculed and crucified. And he did all that for you. He did all that for you because you have an infinite capacity for sin. <laughs> and, you, and you are unable to atone for the sin that you have committed and will commit. So Jesus bore your sins in his body on the cross so that you could be saved. So that you could be redeemed. So that you could have your relationship with God brought back. Restored. So I appeal to you this morning, if you, if you, if you ask yourself the question if on, the, on the side of darkness, you have to do is ask Jesus to bring you to the light, and he'll be pleased to do it. Would you pray with me? Father, we... Um, We all are sinners. I pray for the, my friends gathered here this morning that, that we are all sinners who have been saved by grace. That we once walked in darkness, but now we walk in the light. We were once dead in our trespasses and sins, but now we have been made alive. Lord, may that be true of each one of us here this morning, and if it is not, Lord, I pray that your Spirit would, would speak to the hearts of those who, who are dead and, and, and need to come alive, who are walking in darkness and need to come to the light. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for his sacrifice. As we, as we come to the table, Lord, we, we remember what he has done for us. Now, thank you in, in his name. Amen.